Hi, this is Molly. And Cody. The host of Over the Fence True Crime Podcast. Please join us as we talk about true crime in the most normal place in the world. Over Over the the fence. fence. To be specific, over our backyard fence. We're both moms of humans and of dogs. We live directly next door to each other and share many conversations about life and family, but mostly true crime over our backyard fence. And we invite you to come learn more about true crime and, well, us. We give a lot of attention to California true crime, but have ventured throughout the U.S. and even across the pond and plan to continue our world domination in the near future. Listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts or give us a follow on Instagram at over the fence underscore podcast. So grab a drink and talk with us over the fence. true crime cat lawyer i'm your host elise joined by my co-host winston the cat every other week winston and i will bring you a new story about a murder disappearance or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown the pacific northwest just a reminder this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners including descriptions of violence sexual assault and crimes against animals and children listener discretion is advised Welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. We hope you all had a wonderful, socially distant holiday season with your friends and families. We're happy to say goodbye to 2020 and even happier to be back with a new episode. Today's case is deeply personal to me. It's the reason I became interested in true crime, and it's the first case I knew I wanted to cover on this podcast. I chose to wait until now because this week is actually the 19th anniversary of the disappearance and murder of Ashley Pond, and March 8th will be the 19th anniversary of the disappearance and murder of Miranda Gaddis. I met Miranda in the fifth grade. We became fast, close friends. Miranda was a beautiful, bright, kind, energetic soul. I can confidently say I've never met anyone like her. She deserved much better than the tragic hand she was dealt. Today's episode is dedicated to my friend, Miranda Gaddis, and her friend, Ashley Pond. Ashley Pond was just two months shy of her 13th birthday when she failed to show up to school on January 9th. Even more concerning to those who knew her, Ashley didn't show up for dance practice either. Ashley's mother, Lori Pond, placed a call to 911 on the evening of January 9th to report Ashley as a missing person. The dispatcher attempted to gather information about when Ashley was last seen and what she was last wearing, but it quickly became clear that Lori didn't know any of that. Lori told the dispatcher she last saw Ashley around 7.15 a.m., but then admitted that she'd fallen back asleep and couldn't be sure what time Ashley left the apartment to catch the school bus. 
She guessed what Ashley could have been wearing based on the clothing and shoes that were missing from the apartment. While the dispatcher was trying to get information from Lori, she was toggling back and forth with the police department to get an officer out to the pond residence. The police department was unfortunately familiar with the pond residents as they had been called to respond to domestic disturbances on several occasions in 2001. This history likely explains why the police immediately assumed that Ashley was a runaway. A search of the Newell Creek apartments where Ashley lived wasn't conducted until January 10th. On that same day, investigators headed to Ashley's school to interview her friends and classmates. One of the first people they interviewed was 13-year-old Miranda Gaddis. Miranda had been friends with Ashley for a long time. The two had a lot in common, and they had similar familial makeups. They often ended up living in the same place and went to the same schools. She explained to them that Ashley had a bad home life because her mom was allegedly an alcoholic. Lori had even locked Ashley out of the apartment on one occasion. Miranda also told investigators Ashley might have run away because she was having a hard time at school. You see, Ashley had made some allegations over the previous summer that a man named Ward Weaver had molested her. Weaver had a daughter, Mallory, who was the same age as Ashley and Miranda and was a member of the same dance team. Apparently, when Ashley made these accusations, it created a rift between the girls on the dance team. They were sort of being forced to choose sides between Ashley and Mallory. Of course, once police heard about this conflict, they wanted to talk to Mallory, and more importantly, they wanted to talk to Ward Weaver himself. Since they were already conducting interviews at the school, Mallory was the first stop on their list. Mallory admitted to investigators that she had been friends with Ashley, more like sisters, actually, but the two weren't that close anymore. When investigators pressed her on this, Mallory told them that Ashley had made up lies about her father molesting Ashley. Mallory said Ashley had lived with her and Weaver for a while, during their sixth grade year and the summer after. Weaver allegedly kicked Ashley out of his house before the school year started after he heard about the molestation accusations she made against him. When asked if Ashley would have had any reason to run away, Mallory told police about Ashley's issues with her mom, and she told police that Ashley wasn't allowed to participate in an upcoming dance competition because she'd missed a couple of dance practices. After they finished their interview with Mallory, investigators knew they had to follow up with Ward Weaver. Police called up Weaver, who claimed he had no contact with Ashley on the day she disappeared. In fact, Weaver told police he hadn't been in contact with Ashley for several months due to the false accusations she had made against him. He also mentioned Lori's alleged drinking problem. In the few days after Ashley went missing, Mallory told her vice principal that her Uncle Paul, who was actually a friend of her father's, had seen Ashley walking around a shopping mall just four miles from Oregon City, the town where Ashley lived. A bolo, or be on the lookout, had been issued after Ashley went missing. When police interviewed Uncle Paul, he told them he had seen Ashley at the mall weeks prior to her disappearance, not since. In an effort to follow up on this discrepancy, investigators again speak to Weaver, this time at his work. The officer who interviewed Weaver later said he was very distracted and his behavior was, quote, inappropriate, end quote, given the circumstances. He was laughing and flirting with the officer. 
Nothing useful came from this second interview. Police really had nothing to go on. Their initial impressions were described as, quote, suspicious circumstances incident, no crime scene, no witnesses, probable runaway, end quote. But that would soon change. One week after Ashley disappeared, her case was reclassified from a suspicious circumstances incident to a missing and endangered person case. The reclassification came about for a few reasons. First, no clothes or money were missing from the pond house. Second, Ashley had been missing for over a week. And third, Ashley hadn't made any contact with friends or family at any point since January 9th. Police held a press conference and told the public they had, quote, four to six adult persons of interest, end quote, but of course they didn't provide any names, citing privacy concerns. Police had searched the pond department, but nothing had been found. They were forensically examining the pond family computer, and most notably, the Oregon City Police Department had invited the FBI to join the case. Together, the Oregon City Police, the FBI, and the Oregon State Police would form a task force and conduct a new search for Ashley. Around this same time, a private dog searcher, Marty Neiman, takes his dog Klaus to the Weaver property and requests to search the area for clues. Weaver allows Neiman and Klaus to search the outside of his property, but objects to allowing the dog inside his home. Nothing would come of this search. Eventually, investigators learned that not only had Weaver potentially assaulted Ashley, her own biological father, Wesley Rodiger, had been convicted of sexually abusing her during a visit. Ashley's reports about the sexual abuse by her father were taken seriously, but those allegations she made against Weaver didn't seem to have been given the same seriousness. Ashley told her teacher, Linda Vierden, about the abuse from Weaver, and Vierden immediately reported the incident to Child Protective Services, but she never heard anything back from them. She later found out this information was never passed on to the Oregon City Police Department. Lori later admitted she knew about the sexual abuse allegations Ashley had made against Weaver, but she chose not to report anything to the police. Despite complaints from Ashley's teacher, and a Clackamas County Deputy District Attorney. DHS never opened a formal investigation and no charges were filed against Weaver for the sexual assault allegations. Weaver and his daughter Mallory poisoned those in Ashley's life by suggesting that she lied about Weaver's abuse and that she had lied about her father abusing her. From what I can tell, this appears to be Weaver's own opinion, not something that has been corroborated. On January 23, 2002, a local news reporter, Anna Song, went to the Newell Creek bus stop, hoping to interview some kids who knew Ashley. One of the first girls she interviews is Miranda Gaddis. When Song asks Miranda about Ashley, Miranda says, quote, It's really hard to believe that happened to one of your friends or something. It's just really different and really sad, end quote. Miranda put on a brave face for the cameras but I know deep down, she was worried about her friend. Ashley's 13th birthday comes and goes on March 1st. Her family held a remembrance for her, but Ashley's disappearance had essentially stalled out. There were no clues, 
no witnesses, no crime scene, no leads, and nothing that could help the police figure out what happened to Ashley. Just one week after Ashley's birthday, on March 8th, Miranda Gaddis disappeared on her way to the bus stop. Miranda was 13 years old. She was outgoing, funny, and very loving. She wanted to be a model one day. Miranda had an older sister, Marissa, a younger sister, Mariah, and a younger brother, Jason. Just like Ashley, Miranda didn't have a perfect home life either. Miranda's biological father was convicted of sexually abusing two minor girls, and one of Miranda's mother's boyfriends sexually abused her. Miranda and her siblings were removed from the family's home and put into foster care. This is how I came to meet Miranda. Miranda was, without a doubt, one of the bravest people I've ever known. She had to grow up fast and was incredibly mature for the young age of 13. She was always open and honest about the struggles she'd faced, but she didn't seem to let it get her down. After about a year in foster care, Miranda and her siblings were returned to their mother, Michelle Duffy. Miranda and I sort of lost contact after that. Despite the close proximity between Portland and Oregon City, it felt like worlds away from one another to my 13-year-old self. I didn't understand the foster care system at that age, and I still don't understand it now, but I digress. Around 1.20 on the afternoon of March 8th, Marissa called Miranda's mom, Michelle, to tell her that Miranda hadn't gone to school that day. This didn't sit right with Michelle because she last saw Miranda around 7.30 that morning as the two were leaving their apartment for school and work. Michelle filed a missing persons report at 5.30 p.m. Unlike Ashley's disappearance, police immediately sent officers to canvas the Newell Creek apartment complex. This was the second girl to go missing from this apartment complex almost under the exact same circumstances in just two months. Michelle was adamant with police that Miranda wouldn't just leave. Miranda was very upset about Ashley's disappearance. She even planned a dance memorial fundraising event in honor of Ashley. In addition to canvassing the apartment complex, police once again found themselves on the doorstep of the Weaver home. Weaver told police he hadn't seen Miranda that day. His daughter, Mallory, wasn't home at all that day as she had stayed the night with her mother. Police searched the interior of the Weaver home and conducted a cursory inspection of Weaver's backyard on the night of March 8th, but nothing was found. Now that two girls were missing, the FBI task force established a reward fund of $50,000 provided by private donors in the community. A search dog trainer named Harry Oaks searched Newell Creek Canyon, the forested area adjacent to the Newell Creek Apartments, on March 10th. His dog, Valerie, alerted at the bottom of a steep canyon below Beaver Creek Road. However, because it was nighttime, it was incredibly dark and Oaks wasn't able to conduct a proper search. He returned to the location with Valerie on March 15th. Valerie led Oaks up the hill to the Weaver property. Weaver wasn't home, but his son Francis answered the door and Oaks asked if he could search the property. Weaver provided consent over the phone, but told Oaks to keep Valerie away from the newly poured concrete slab in his backyard. When Oaks led Valerie into the backyard, she began pacing back and forth over the concrete slab before alerting and trying to claw or dig at the concrete slab. After Oaks left the Weaver property, he made a call to the Oregon City Police about what had happened. When he didn't receive a response, 
he wrote a letter to the chief of police and he sent copies of the letter to Ashley's family and the FBI task force. It should be noted that I read in several sources that Oakes wasn't seen as a legitimate search dog trainer and he hadn't been allowed to join the official search when Ashley first disappeared. A neighbor of Ashley's named Brian Taylor was interviewed several times but denied any involvement in the girl's disappearances. He claimed he left his house around noon on March 8th to go camping at Bagby Hot Springs and didn't return until Sunday the 10th. He told police that he was camping alone. One source claims he was the focus of the investigation at one point, but was eventually ruled out. After Miranda disappeared, media interest in the case grew. Miranda and Ashley were featured on America's Most Wanted, and people later covered the story in their Memorial Day issue. Twelve billboards displaying the girls' pictures were displayed throughout the Portland metro area. Around this same time, a note was found inside a waterproof bag sealed in a cardboard box in Fort Pierce, Florida. The words, please help, were written on the outside of the box. Inside the box was a letter, purportedly from Ashley, but it was later deemed to be a cruel hoax. Despite over 3,000 tips coming in to police, they were no closer to finding Ashley and Miranda. Investigators looked at two other men who lived in the Newell Creek complex at the time of Ashley and Miranda's disappearances. The two men were roommates in their early 20s. They spent a lot of time hanging out around the complex's playground, and some of the girls in the complex thought the two men were, quote, creepy perverts, end quote. Police placed the two men under surveillance, searched their apartment, and formally interviewed them. Investigators asked both men to take polygraph tests, and they both agreed. However, my research has conflicting reports as to whether or not the two men passed their polygraphs. Whether or not they passed, the two men were eventually eliminated as persons of interest. Ashley's father, Wesley Rodiger, refused to take a polygraph test. Meanwhile, Weaver took his polygraph test but failed, quote, substantially, end quote, according to investigators. Both men continued to face scrutiny from detectives, but as we all know, Polygraphs aren't admissible in court, so they aren't really evidence of anything. People can lie and still pass, and people who are telling the truth can fail. But Weaver's failed polygraph was a red flag, and investigators began digging further into his past. Weaver served time in a California prison and had an extensive history of violence and sexual assault, primarily against women. This history wasn't conclusive evidence of anything, but it certainly made police question whether the laughing, flirty, outspoken man they'd interviewed was just an act to disguise something much more sinister. Weaver didn't do a lot to help himself not look like a suspect during this time. Digging up and pouring the concrete slab after Ashley went missing was a huge red flag. Failing the polygraph was another blow to his credibility. Then, Weaver began speaking to the media. He called himself the, quote, number one suspect, end quote, and even took Anna Song, the local news reporter who had spoken to Miranda after Ashley's disappearance, on a tour of his property. They stopped and chatted for a few minutes on top of the concrete slab. Weaver obviously had a connection to both Ashley and Miranda, but police didn't have any hard evidence that could link him to their disappearances so they waited for that one lead that would allow them to obtain a search warrant for Weaver's property. 
Despite his initial invitations for people to search his property, investigators knew once they started closing in on Weaver, there was no way they would be able to get inside his house and he would likely start destroying evidence. The big break in the case came on August 13, 2002. Frances Weaver's girlfriend ran out of the Weaver home naked and grabbed a tarp to wrap herself in before flagging down a car for help on Beaver Creek Road. Frances's girlfriend was in tears as she explained to the Good Samaritan that her boyfriend's father, Ward Weaver, had just tried to rape her. The driver immediately called 911 and took the woman to the hospital. Shortly after Francis's girlfriend escaped Weaver, Francis himself called 911 to tell police that his father had tried to rape his girlfriend earlier that day. Then he dropped a bombshell on police. Francis told them that his father had confessed to murdering both Ashley and Miranda. This was the probable cause police needed in order to obtain a search warrant for Weaver's property. Weaver was arrested for the attempted rape of his son's girlfriend. A search warrant was executed at his property on August 23, 2002. The FBI set up two white tents in their backyard to shield their search efforts from the media's helicopters. Dozens of agents were brought in to search both inside the home as well as the backyard and shed on the property. On August 24, 2002, Investigators located human remains inside an old microwave box, which was found during their search of the shed. These remains were identified as belonging to 13-year-old Miranda Gaddis. Shock, sadness, and heartbreak. Those are the feelings I had when I first watched the press conference nearly 20 years ago, and they remain the feelings I have to this day when I think about what happened to my friend. Miranda's body was partially clothed, bound by cords, covered in clear plastic with the microwave box taped closed. The next day, investigators used ground-penetrating radar before digging up the concrete slab in Weaver's backyard. On August 25th, more remains were found in a barrel under the concrete slab. These remains were identified as those of Ashley Pond. Ashley's remains were fully clothed, soaked with fluid, with a white rope around her neck, and binding on her hands and wrists. Ashley was tightly wrapped in four clear plastic bags with a silver tarp on the outside. There were several items embedded in Ashley's clothing, including cigarette butts, styrofoam fragments, broken sunflower seeds, and a Q-tip. Ashley's remains were partially mummified, leading investigators to believe her body may have been placed in a freezer prior to being relocated in the barrel. While a lot of people had their suspicions about Weaver's involvement with the girls' disappearances, having the FBI confirm them took away all of the hope we had of ever seeing the girls alive again. Two months after Ashley and Miranda's bodies were found on his property, Weaver was charged with six counts of aggravated murder, two counts of abuse of a corpse in the second degree, one count of sexual abuse in the first degree, one count of attempted rape in the second degree, one count of attempted aggravated murder, one count of attempted rape in the first degree, and one count of sexual abuse in the first degree, one count of sexual abuse in the second degree, and two counts of sexual abuse in the third degree. After an attempt to plead insanity and allege that he couldn't help participate in his own defense, Weaver finally pleaded guilty to murdering Ashley and Miranda and was given two life sentences as part of a plea bargain which took the death penalty off the table. 
Their formal cause of death is listed as, quote, homicide by unknown causes, end quote. Weaver has never spoken publicly about any of the details of the girls' murder. The thing that has always stuck with me the most, other than the murder of two innocent girls, is how Weaver treated Ashley and Miranda after he killed them. He stole two lives and then threw them out like they were trash. The way he carried on without a care in the world after both girls went missing is disgusting. Absolutely no remorse or guilt for the two lives he'd taken and the countless others he'd destroyed. Those who show no remorse for taking another's life can't be rehabilitated. Weaver is exactly where he should be, and he will remain there until the day he dies. There's a lot of information available about Weaver's past, his father's criminal past, and his children's involvement with the criminal justice system. If you want more information about any of that, I recommend checking out the sources in our episode description. I wanted this episode to focus on Ashley and Miranda, the people they were, and not just the tragedy that happened to them. I'll post some pictures on our website and social media, which highlight some of the fond memories I have of my friendship with Miranda. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This one was a rough one for me, but Ashley and Miranda's stories truly showcase the broken child welfare system. We have to do a better job of investigating allegations of child abuse and sexual abuse. State organizations are severely underfunded and they don't have the resources to take the time and care that all of these cases deserve. If you or a child you know is the victim of abuse, please call 1-800-4-A-CHILD. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.